Well, if you'll take your uh, Bible and let's turn to Luke uh, chapter 16. So let me just kind of go back and kind of reiterate um, why, why I did this series. Uh, we only have a couple more messages left, and you, you really don't want to miss the last two because um, really everything else that I've done up to this point has just been the buildup for the last two messages in this series uh, that's, going to, that's going to unpack some rocks for a lot of you. Uh, if you will hang there in there with me, and if you can't be here personally, at least go online and listen to the message. Um, do you know that only six to eight percent of Americans who give their life to the Lord Jesus Christ to be their Savior and Lord will continue to follow Him, or still be following Him six months later? Six to eight percent. And those of you who were raised in church, uh, maybe you accepted Christ at a very young age, and uh, you grew up in church, and you were brought to church every Sunday, and the percentage of those individuals who, once they leave their homes, uh, the percentage is staggering of those who will walk away from their faith. It's a huge problem. And the reason I think this is the case is because we have taught people how to experience God's forgiveness, but we have failed to teach them how to walk in his freedom because they're not one and the same. And in this series, I've been trying to um, explain or just bring up some of the false beliefs about God, and these are lies. Uh, these are lie-based thoughts that begin usually early in childhood uh, based on events that have happened in your life, and these lies get buried into your subconscious and then into your, brought into your conscious mind and you live on the basis of those lies. And many of these lies are built around your concept of God, especially God as Father. And so each week we've been trying to take a specific lie that people have believed about God and then try to give you the truth because it is the truth, Jesus said, that will set you free. All right, So you have to learn how to take every thought captive and obedience to Christ, and expose the lie, accept the truth, and then begin living out the truth of God's word. This is the process. This is a journey. This is a lifelong journey God has placed us in as we walk with Jesus day in and day out. So today, and the reason I did not put the outline up on the, uh, in, in your bulletin is because I thought if I tell you the outline, many of you probably will go home. All right? So... Here's the lie. And these are two really big rocks that people struggle with with God. We, we tackled one of them last week. Why does God continue to allow evil and suffering to go on in the world, especially you know, when innocent children are involved, and why doesn't he do something about it? This week, uh, we're going to talk about the topic of hell. This is not a topic that is preached upon very often in our pulpits anymore, and uh, there's some reasons for that. But here's the lie that um, people believe about God. People believe that in somehow, some way, God is going to receive some kind of sadistic satisfaction out of sending people to hell. And one of the reasons why they have that belief is because that's, in times past, that's how God was portrayed. Because sometimes we were so bent on scaring people into heaven from the pulpit 
that we began to build all of these word pictures like God's going to put you on, you know, on the end of a, a stick like you're roasting a hot dog over an open flame fire and he was just going to somehow, you know, glory and delight in that with you. When nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the Bible says, God says of himself, I take absolutely no delight in the death of the wicked. So this concept of hell has become a great stumbling block for Western people. And for some people, it's a deal breaker. You can talk to them about Jesus all you want, but they're going to say, hey, what about this thing called hell? I don't know. I just can't imagine a God who is all loving. He would judge people in some way. And Why does God condemn people eternally for what they did in a finite amount of time? You know, if, if I did something in a finite amount of time, why do I have to pay for that all eternity? And so, you know, that's a legitimate question, and it is a question that ought to be answered. Or why is it necessary for hell to involve, you know, any kind of torture? I mean, it just seems like it's a big torture chamber and that somehow God's deriving some kind of delight from that. Well, is that the way the Bible has portrayed that? Peter Kreft writes this, of all the doctrines in Christianity, hell is probably the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to believe, and the first to be abandoned. And so many people are appalled by the fact that God could behave in such a way. So how do we respond to this? Now, you can respond by just saying, well, that's what the Bible teaches like a, a lumpet, you know, or you can answer their questions. You can let them face their questions. And really, I, I hope you're facing those questions. I hope if somebody were to ask you that question, uh, that you would be able to at least articulate some kind of answer and not just say, well, the Bible says so. That, that helps no one. Uh, so we, uh, we want to type, dive a little bit deeper than that today. And, um, you know, I don't know about you, but I remember when I was um, first introduced to church and I was uh, 15 years old, the first time I ever entered into a church. And I remember during that time back in the early 70s that, you know, the hellfire brimstone kind of preaching was very popular in that day and time. And, and so hell was kind of like hell, held over your, your head and you know, if you went up to somebody and say, hey, uh, you want to spend your, the rest of your life in hell being tortured by God? Well, that's a no-brainer, okay? Who wants to do that? Uh, nobody wants to do that. I don't want to, I don't, you know, even though I didn't believe in God at that time, I really didn't have much opinion on it. Uh, I was just like, well, well, no, I wouldn't want to do that. And so uh, we, we told people and we tried to scare people into heaven. And we scared them and said, you know, if you just pray this prayer, uh, it's all going to be okay. And so, you know, many of us prayed that prayer, and the problem with fear is this. Fear might motivate you for a little bit, but it's not going to work for you over the long haul. When you, are, when you are introduced to Christ out of fear, and the motivation for your making that decision is fear-based, I doubt if anyone will ever become a true disciple, because all you wanted to do is get your get out of hell free card, right? I'm taking my life on from there. You know, thank you very much. I got my card. Uh, you know, I play Monopoly, get out of jail free. I got my get out of hell card free. And uh, we just like, okay, great, wonderful. Now I can just go on with my life. I have noticed that those who are tried to, the, the, we were so bent on trying to get people to receive Christ that we tried to drive them by fear 
And if fear was their motive, rarely, if ever, did it translate into a life of discipleship and mishandling the doctor of hell and the reality of God's judgment of our sin can, I think it can greatly damage a person's faith if it's not handled correctly. So what do we do? How do we answer these questions? So I want to try to do that today. The issue of hell is not a peripheral issue. All right, it is, a, it is a topic that Jesus talked about a lot. If you were to take all of Jesus' teaching and narrow them down to various categories, you'll discover that 13% of his teaching dealt with the issue of hell. When you took his teachings and his parables, uh, about 13% deal with hell, judgment, punishment, the wrath of God. And so if you want to get rid of hell, you have to get rid of Jesus. Because Jesus was very upfront about it. He was very forthright about this issue that we oftentimes in our day and time, we want to sidestep and, and really don't, don't, we don't know how to respond to people when this becomes their pushback. Yeah, well, you know, uh, you, you tell me about this God of love and how he sent Jesus in the world. I get it. Okay, I, I, I grasp that to a degree. But what about this thing called hell? Why would God do that? Why would he allow that? So what I want to do from this text that we're going to read this morning is I want to talk to you about the five major questions people have about hell. Or you might put it this way, five objections that they have about this concept um, called hell. So Luke chapter 16, uh, remember Jesus is just coming off of his parable with um, the uh, prodigal son, and and we'll pick that back up uh, next week and begin tying that together. But then he went into a, a really a, kind of a weird-like uh, parable called the parable of the shrewd manager. And then he comes to this, this rich man and Lazarus. So Luke 16, verse 19. Uh, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire." But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, fathers, Uh, Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Repent. Remember, a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises 
from the dead. Wow. So how do we answer these questions that people are now asking us? Um, Obviously, in this parable or in this story, Jesus reminds us that one out of one individuals still dies. The Bible says that it is appointed unto man to die once, and after this, the judgment. Okay, So we know that unless Jesus comes back and raptures us out of this world, that we are at some point in our lives, we are going to experience physical death. Now, remember that when God created you, he created you in his image, which means you are spirit, soul, and body. When you receive Christ in your life, the Holy Spirit of God moved within you. He indwells you. He is at the core. You you are a spiritual being, and it's through your spirit that you connect with God's spirit and that you have relationship. You have communication. Your soul is your mind, will, and emotions. It's the psychological side of you. And then you have your external shell, your body. So the Bible teaches us that when a person dies physically, that their spirit and soul separates from the body and enters into an eternal existence. So think of this. God did not create you for time, for his time of space, whether it be 60, 70, 80, 90 years, however long you're going to live. God created you for eternity. And in order for you to step into eternity, you must go through the doorway of death. So every human being is going to die. And um, when you die, based on this uh, story that Jesus gives to us, when you die, you're going to know where you're spending eternity. It's not going to be a guess for you. It's not going to be that, you know, oh, I hope, you know, like many of the stories are told, you know, I hope when I get up to the pearly gates, I can convince Peter to let me in. That's not the way this works. That's Hollywood. So uh, I want to tackle this topic because here's what Jesus said. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Do you know that most people in America do believe in hell? In fact, in the last poll, 76% of Americans said, yes, I believe that there is a literal hell, but only 6% thought they were actually going there. Yet Jesus tells us just the opposite. He says, broad is the road that leads to this, this destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to God's eternal life. And so in our Western culture, we have become accustomed to building our belief system around our feelings. If this feels right, then I can believe that is truth. But if it just doesn't feel right, then I cannot accept it as truth. And so whether or not people accept this um, concept, whether or not God has this place, uh, you know, set aside for those who refuse to, re- to receive Christ as their Savior and Lord. Um, basically, the belief system is, you know, if, if it lines up with my feelings and desires, I'll accept it. If it does not, then I will reject it. So though many people may acknowledge there's probably a place that exists, um, very few think that they're actually going to go there. And so the Bible is clear uh, on these things, and we... Um, And it's never to our benefit to soften or to sidestep the truth. 
Listen, we may not emotionally like it, but it doesn't discount what is truth. So I'm not going to sidestep the issue, and I'm not going to, you know, like soft step around it. This is God's universe, and you may think that you have a better way, but if you think you have a better way, then just listen to what God told Job, who thought he had a better way than God. God said, go gather up your universe and bring it to me, and we'll sit down and discuss it. You've got none, and neither did he. And so here is uh, really what, what God says in answer to the question. So here's the first question that people often ask me. Well, what is hell going to be like? What is hell going to be like? Now, remember, they're asking you questions like this, not on the basis of what you just read together, but on the basis of, because they've probably not read anything about it. They just want to know, well, what is hell really going to be like? And again, Jesus certainly believed that this is a, a real place. And so uh, God describes using different um, uh, uh, words to describe hell. Uh, I don't know that our minds can really uh, grasp hell any more than our minds can actually grasp heaven. Although we read about heaven, God talks a lot about heaven and what it's going to be like. It's difficult for our minds to comprehend. So just as with heaven in, in describing hell, Jesus often used apocalyptic words or metaphors in order to describe hell and, and what it's going to be like. For example, uh, you can jot this verse down. Under the question, what will hell be like, Revelation 20.10, it says that hell will be like a lake of fire. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, here's the concept that people have when they, we talk about a lake of fire. They feel like, okay, so you mean to tell me that hell is going to be like this burning cauldron of fire? And as I've heard one person describe uh, many, many, many years ago, he, he was an evangelist, and he had a, a particular um, message on hell, and he says it's just like throwing kids inside of a, a burning, you know, cold-driven oven, and they're just burning and burning and burning, and God's taking great delight. No, okay, stop it. The word fire, is that literal or is that, is God, is Jesus using that in a, a word that is um, apocalyptic, maybe more of a metaphor? For example, Jesus or, or God himself is referred to as fire. And so normally in fire in the scripture is a reference to judgment. So the question is, is there a literal fire in heaven or is there not? Well, I mean, in hell. So I, I, I don't know that you can be dogmatic about this. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But certainly what Jesus is trying to communicate is that it is a place of torment, okay? It is a place of, of punishment. It is a place of receiving uh, what is, what is um, deserving, Right, so the lake of fire is the Greek word Gehenna, and Gehenna referred to was really the garbage dump that was outside of the city of Jerusalem, and the fires burned there day and night. Uh, and so criminals, for example, who were punished, who were, were tortured or put to death or crucified, often their bodies were thrown on these, on these fires. Um, Children who were sacrificed to gods at, at one time in that particular location, that's where those took place, and, and, and their bodies were burned. And so certainly it is a, a vivid image, 
and he says that Satan and the other, other members of the holy, unholy trinity will be thrown in the lake of fire, and the Bible refers to this as the second death. And so it says that, that, the, that death, um, the devil who's deceived, and so uh, Matthew 13, 42 says it's a place of weeping, it is a place of, of the gnashing of teeth. And so let's take the, the thoughts of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is, a, that is a physical response to regret. All right? So um, the gnashing of teeth is an expression of frustration or disappointment or longing for something that you cannot have or you cannot receive. So like if you give yourself to greed, all right? So eventually, uh, if you give your heart to greed, you're going to have this insatiable desire to have stuff, right? To have money, to have to possessions. And what happens if you can't get it? And so there's like this gnashing of teeth. There is this, this desire, this longing that is going unfulfilled. And so that's what Jesus says that hell is going to be like. It's, the, it's like, so every desire that we have is God-given, right? So God gave us these desires, and these desires were meant to find their ultimate fulfillment through Christ. But if I look for something or someone else to fulfill what only Jesus can fulfill in me, when I enter into hell, guess who is absent? Jesus. So therefore, hell, a part of hell is, is knowing that there is this insatiable longing and desire and lust that is within me that can never be fulfilled. And so it's like I'm, I'm grinding, I'm, I'm wanting this, I'm desiring, but I can't have. Um, Matthew 25, 30 says it's a place of darkness. And throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. Again, darkness in the human heart is seen every day. Uh, our, yesterday, our world, in our world, hundreds of people were murdered. Thousands of children were abused, many of them sexually and other ways. So there is darkness all over our, our land, right? So all over our world, dark things happen that are outside the will of God. And so we just, over time, we just kind of get used to it. We can pick up our phones, we can scroll through the news feeds, and we can see all these things going on, and just like it's, we move to the next thing, and we move to the end of the funny video of the animals doing tricks, and we move to these different things. And so our hearts are, have almost become hardened, our conscience has almost become seared to the darkness that fills our world. And so the rich man's thoughts, you'll notice in this story, his thoughts are very clear. His emotions were intact. His mind was fully functional. I'm not saying that, 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 that hell is not a, a, a pretty place. It, it is not a pretty place. And that's what Jesus' point was. But I'm just simply saying, if, if your concept of hell is that God's just getting some kind of delight by throwing people in this burning fire, and they're, they're just going to like, you know, and, and somehow the, that torment is just bringing delight to the heart of God. It is not. So Jesus often used metaphors. For example, the Bible says that when Jesus comes back, he's coming back with a sword coming out of his mouth. Does that mean Jesus is coming with a literal sword out of his mouth? No. The sword is a reference to the word of God. He will speak the word of God, and he will immediately bring to an end the war that's happening, playing out here on earth. The battle of Armageddon. So here's how the Bible describes this place of suffering. There is emotional, mental suffering. Notice in verse 25, it says, Abraham, 
replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Look at that word remember. Do you have anything in your life that you wish you could forget? And so in this place, our memories, their memories are very much intact. Any regrets, any power of regret. And so they're kind of like eaten up with this mental anguish of what what could have been, what they wish had, had been, but was not. And one of the joys of heaven is the fact that our painful memories, that God in somehow, some form or fashion, he's wiping away all of our tears, he's wiping away all of those painful memories so that they are no longer the driving force of our lives. But in hell, these painful memories seem to stay intact. It's the unending mental torment, the agonizing mental churning of a lost opportunities and poor choices. In fact, so much so, you notice what he says in this agony. He says, hey, I've got five other brothers. I don't want them to end up here. Go send somebody, you know. Get somebody from the dead. They'll listen to them. And just as the rich man cried out for water to soothe his agony, the sin nature of those in hell will cry out eternally for fulfillment. But there won't be any. So death freezes our moral compass. People will remain in the fashion they entered, but their addictions are never met. There is physical suffering. Obviously, he thirsts. He, has, he, he feels. Um, hell is a physical place, obviously, and they're awaiting the time of their ultimate judgment before God, known as the great white throne judgment uh, that happens at the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation 20, 13 uh, makes note of this. And so these people who are judged, and they're, they're in this place that God has sent them, and there is so mental, emotional, there's physical, there's relational suffering that goes on. Notice that, um, that Lazarus is at Abraham's side. So just to put it uh, um, as simple as I can, you read in the Old Testament the word Sheol, and in the New Testament the word Hades. And so prior to the resurrection of Jesus, everyone who died physically went to Sheol or Hades. But Sheol and Hades was a divided compartment. There was Abraham's side that's known as Abraham's bosom or paradise, and then there is the other side that we would think of as hell. And so when we think about the lake of fire, the lake of fire has not come into effect yet. Uh, when a person who is lost dies, they go to Hades. That has not been emptied out. When Jesus was resurrected, you'll note that when, with Jesus' resurrection, it says that the graves were open, so Abraham's side was emptied out. And they were the, those souls, the bodies were you know, emptied out, the soul and spirit was emptied out and on to, to paradise with Jesus. So in this particular situation, um, there, is, there is this relational side that um, the status that they find themselves in is, is, cannot be reversed. You notice there's this great chasm between them, uh, the rich man and, and Lazarus. But here's what I want you to see is that the only thing this rich guy is, is worried about is the fact that he wants Lazarus to come over and serve him. You see, his sin nature is still very much intact. Here's what I want you to get. We think that people, when they end up in hell, that they're going to be like, hey, God, this is unfair. It's unjust. 
I have no right to be here. I don't want to be here. You, you need to do something about this. None of that. When this rich man is able to speak to Abraham, he does not say, this is unfair, it's unjust, I've got a raw deal by God, I don't want to be here, I want you to get me out. No, the only interest he has is that somebody gets some water and cools his tongue. The point is this, is that when people end up in hell, we think that they're going to be down there screaming and clamoring and climbing and trying to claw their way back out. Not at all. They are there because they chose to be there. And so when they enter into that realm, they are like, it's like they're frozen. Their, their, their sin nature is frozen and there's, there's no desire to leave. This guy doesn't ask to leave. He doesn't ask for a way out. He doesn't ask that somebody get him out of purgatory. There is no such thing as purgatory in scripture. He's, it's not that, you know, it's not that it's a place that's not a place of torment, but it is a place that he certainly is not asking to leave. And so there's this spiritual suffering. Obviously, there is this uh, separation from God. There's this great chasm, but he's able to see Abraham and he, he's able to converse, but he cannot go there. It's kind of like, um, I don't know if any of you have uh, toured Alcatraz. You know, Alcatraz was a mile off of San Francisco on an island, and there the no most notorious criminals were placed, and they could see out their windows, and they could see the city lights of, the, of San Francisco. And so it was like this great chasm between where they were located and where the city was. And it's kind of the picture that, that we have here uh, is, is that Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, and so... He, he can legitimately talk about, you know, this, this guy, is, is, he's, he's somehow communicating with Abraham. Now, the question is, well, it, will it always be that way? When people end up in hell, uh, will they, you know, like have to stare at all of us in heaven and be filled with jealousy because they're not there? Will they be able to see across this great chasm? I don't know. The Bible doesn't specifically say that, but at this point in time, obviously that was, that was the case. He was, able, he was able to see. And so hell is a place where, where God is not. Even the most pagan atheist has the luxury to experience God's presence here on earth. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, and so whether a person is lost or saved, they are still the recipients of God's grace as it is lived out through God's people. You're kind of under the umbrella of the grace of God because of the body of Christ. So in answer to the question, uh, what is hell going to be like? It's not going to be a fun place. It's not going to be, you know, my friends, you say, well, come on, Greg, it doesn't matter. We're all going to party, man. You know, we're just going to party up down there and it's going to be a great time. I, I don't think we're going to have a great time. I don't know everything there is to know uh, other than what scripture reveals about what's going to go on and how it's going to go on, but I can assure you um, that this individual who has died and now finds himself in this eternal destiny is not screaming to get out. Why did God, here's the second question, why did God create the place to begin with? Why did he even create it? I, I don't understand it. Could he have not uh, you know, dealt with the rebellion of man in some other way? Why this? So Matthew 24, 25, 41 says, Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, 
you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So scripture tells us that God originally created hell for Satan and the fallen angels, the demons who sided with him and their rebellion and their opposition against God. And so that's just a fundamental act of choice, right? So remember we talked last week about where there is freedom of choice, there is the shadow of freedom. If I'm free to choose uh, to love you, then I'm also free to choose to hate you. If, If I'm free to choose not to steal from you, I'm also free to choose to steal from you. And so ultimately we have choices to make, and ultimately with every decision there are consequences to those decisions. And again, so again, this rich man, he's not crying out foul play, unfair against God, but he just complains, and he doesn't even complain that this is unjust, that, Lord, you know, this is not justice. Although God did not create hell for people, those who make the same choice as Satan will suffer the same judgment. Just as we have to choose Christ in heaven, unrepentant sinners sinners will go to hell by choice, not by chance. Listen, God does not take humanity, whom he gave the freedom of choice, hogtie you, put you in a straitjacket, and drag you into heaven. You'd be miserable there. You'd absolutely be miserable. Listen, you can't live 60, 70, 80 years of your life in rebellion against God and having no desire for God or the things of God and think all of a sudden when I'm thrust into heaven, now everything's going to be wonderful and perfect and I'm going to love it up here. According to Scripture, it's just not going to work that way. Somebody says, well, I don't know anybody who would deliberately choose to go to hell. Well, if you were to ask people point blank that question, they probably wouldn't. But the decision isn't that simple. You see, hell is the built-in consequence of rejecting Christ. And so we make the choice. We refuse to repent and to receive Christ for forgiveness. And so as we saw in the parable of the two lost sons, the prodigal son, here's the deal. Here's what people want. They want God's stuff. They just don't want God. They don't want the relationship. Just give me all your stuff, and that's what I want. And I'll take care of my life from here on out. I'll call the shots. I'll be the captain of my ship. I will be the CEO of my own company. And so that's the way we choose to live our lives. But if you don't want God, you don't get his heaven. And some people have, you know, you have children who are like this, right? You may have children who grow up in your home. And they decide, you know what? I don't like your rules. I don't like the way you parent. I don't like a lot of things. Now, I love the fact that you're putting meals on my table. And I love the fact that you give me a place to stay. And you give me a car to drive. I love all of those things. But buddy, when I turn 18 and I'm out of this house, I am out of here and I'm out of your life for good. There are parents who experience that from their children. Although they have conformed outwardly in order to get your stuff... When the, when, when the opportunity arises to call their own shots now and, and make their own way, now I'm, I'm out of here. I'm gone. I don't need you. And so anyone who chooses to reject Christ forfeits his benefits. And that's the way it is. It's just. You know, somebody 
careened your car in our parking lot and put a note on your windshield and said, sorry, you'd be crying for justice, right? You want somebody to pay. Somebody owes you. Well, the same thing is true in in relationship to God. God is loving. God is kind. God is merciful. God is gracious, but he's also holy, and he's just, and he's righteous, and we just can't be like a salad bar and just pick the attributes of God that we like and throw away the ones that we dislike. But that's the way humanity operates. That's the way a rebellious heart operates. I just want the stuff of God that I want, and then I just want to throw the rest of it away. It just doesn't work that way. God is holy, so when we sin, he is just in responding to our sin. Now hang on with me. Number three, is hell temporary or is it eternal? Because here's... Because our hearts have a difficult time with, with this concept of hell lasting forever, we say something, listen if, I, listen, if I've committed a sin in a finite amount of time, why would I have to suffer for eternity for that? Well, let me ask you a question. How long would it take you to murder somebody? About six seconds. But what does the justice inside of us say? They need to pay with their life. They need to spend their life in prison. And if they kill more than one person, then we cry out for the death penalty, do we not? That's the sense of justice that is within us. But because this is not emotionally satisfying to us, we try to, we try to build ways around it. And so we say, well, well maybe, because this is what I believe. I believe that when you died... This is when I was not in church, pre-Christ. I believe that when I died, I'm just annihilated. You just don't know you ever existed. God just annihilates you. Would that not be the kind and compassionate thing to do? That's what I thought. Or you may travel the other side that says, well, no, what happens is, is that people, they're going to end up in hell, and, and, and they're going to experience that for a little while, and God's going to come down and say, hey, y'all... Those of you who want to come out of here, come on. And it's called universalism. And so all roads will ultimately end up leading back to heaven because who in the world would be there and want to stay there? Evidently, rebellious humanity. And so in order for us to deal with this, we, 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 try, to, we try to build these, these bridges of theology you notice it says there is a chasm. There is no relocation. There's no visitation process here. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I have family members who don't know Jesus. I had a mother who didn't know Christ. I had a father. I had siblings. And, and it's painful for you to think, you mean to tell me? Um, if, if, they, if they don't come to Jesus, that's it. And, and so in order for us to try to grapple with this emotionally, because this is a struggle for us, is it not? It's hard for us to think about the fact that our loved ones may not end up in heaven with us, and so we do all kinds of mental gymnastics, annihilation, universalism. Here's what I've noticed. I've been to thousands of funerals. I've conducted hundreds and hundreds of funerals. You've never seen a person laying in a casket whose family did not 
believe to the bottom of their core that they're in heaven. I don't care what they were like. Because there's just something within us as human beings that just cannot bring ourselves to, to, to emotionally handle the fact that this may happen to one of my family members. You know, my grandparents, who died tragically at the same time, from all indication, I don't know, I'm not their judge, I'm not God. God will judge justly and righteously. Again, no one's going to be able to say that this was unfair, I got a, I got a horrible deal. Are they in heaven? I don't know. I just can't say. Certainly there was no indication through their entire lifetime that they ever really really cared about the things of God. Or God. I know towards the, as they got older, they, they kind of nodded that way a little bit, but then kind of backed off, and then their death happened. So the, the fourth question is, how can a loving God send people to hell? How can this happen? Either God is a loving father or hell is horrific, but it can't be both. And so how can a loving father send people to hell? The fact is God has never sent anyone. It's a choice. It's a choice. People say, well, shouldn't God be more tolerant? You don't have the problem. It's amazing. You don't have a problem with God rendering his justice in very heavy-handed way against somebody who is a rapist. For example, there was a police officer who was just recently arrested. He's 72 years old. It is discovered that he committed um, like 45 rapes, 12 murders, and over 120 burglaries as a police officer. And I'm certain that those who lost loved ones at his hands are thinking they can't make hell hot enough for this guy. Right? So we want justice at times, but then at other times it's like, oh, wait a minute. No, this, this isn't fair. I mean, we say, hey, murderers and pedophiles and sex traffickers, man, God, God ought to, you know, God ought to raise the temperature in there like, a, you know, another sevenfold for these people. Have you ever thought about the fact that Adam and Eve committed one sin that led to their fall? that led to God's response of having to send his own son into the world to die for the sins of humanity, one sin. So here's our problem. We can't even begin to fathom how God sees sin, how he views it, how it is such an affront to him. And when we look at our loved ones and we say, but you know what? Okay, they're not perfect. Uh, you know, they, they've got some flaws. They, they have some problems, you know. I, I get that. I, I understand that. But, you know, come on, God, give them a break. And yet, as Jesus hung on the cross carrying the sins of the world, The Bible says God had to turn away from him in disgust, causing him to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's the message of the Bible, and it's wrapped up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And I love the way Timothy Keller puts it. He says, we are far more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So my question would be to you is, what are you asking God to do for your family members? Are you asking him to wipe out their past sins and, uh, and at all costs give them a fresh start? Are you asking God to forgive them of everything? He's done that through Christ. God has made every preparation. God has done everything necessary for every, every human being to bypass this place called hell and to enter into God's paradise. God has taken the front porch of hell. He's put caution tape all over it. And listen, we are living in a day and time in which the gospel is going around the world all the time because of the, you know, with the use of technology and the use of satellites. I mean, I've gone to the poorest of poor places, uh, for example, in Nicaragua. And as we were traveling from the airport to where we were going to be in Nicaragua, almost every single house had a satellite dish on top of it. It's not that people don't have access to the gospel. I understand there are a few, there are a few people groups who have very little, if any, access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But listen, God judges on the basis of, on the basis of how much they have been enlightened. Not on the basis of what they don't know. But here's what the Bible bears out, and here's what our missionaries bear out to us, is that if a person will just make a step towards God to, to, to understand and to know and to want to be with him and, and to know him, that God will give them enough light to get them the next step and give them a little more light and get the next step. It's amazing. Our missionaries have gone into the jungles and people groups that have been, you know, like isolated from society for hundreds and hundreds of years, and, and they get there, and they're ready to present the gospel, and and all of a sudden they find out these people have already kind of had an understanding of Jesus. They just didn't know what his name was. Listen, God takes no delight. He says it's his will that none would perish, but all come under repentance. And so there are biblical examples where God gave special revelations, including direct speech and dreams and visions. As you know, there was a Muslim man who was in this church, who came to this church, who, who sat in my office across from me. He says, God gave me a dream. And the dream was that a white man would sit across the table from me and he would tell me about Jesus. And here I was. I shared Christ. He received Christ. He was baptized in this church. But because of the persecution of his family, he had to flee the area. They couldn't handle the fact that he was now a follower of Jesus Christ. So let me just close with this. Um, I, I know that all of this, I mean, I'm trying to unpack. I'm, I'm just kind of giving you a 30,000-foot view. There's so much that we could say about, unpack about hell. I know it's a very difficult topic for us. It's a very personal topic to us. It's very difficult for us to kind of process in our minds and our hearts. So let me just kind of, let me show you God's desire for all to be saved. It's what I call the Aunt Edna Objections. We all have an Aunt Edna, right? Aunt Edna is the nice old lady. She's never hurt anyone. She's always paid her taxes. And when you were growing up, man, she made some fantastic cookies. 
like chocolate chip, dip it in milk, warm, soft, melt in your mouth. She was kind to stray cats. I mean, she was just a good person. Never bothered anyone. She was just like golden, but she, but she wasn't a Christian. And we, we tend to think, well, poor Aunt Edna, she never had a chance. I would dare say that as Aunt Edna grew up, that she was probably taken to church on the two holidays that most people who don't normally go to church go to church, Christmas and Easter. I would dare say that Aunt Edna heard about Jesus that Ed, Aunt Edna came the, across the pathway of Christ. You, you can't live in America and not come across the pathway of Jesus. You just can't. Now, you may have very limited or no, very little knowledge, but you're going to come across this pathway. And she probably heard the story of the God who loved her. And so here was a person who opened up the scripture, opened up the word of God and talked about how much God loved her and how Jesus came to die for her and how he became her substitute and how through a relationship with him that Aunt Edna could spend eternity in God. And she's a young girl and, and she's, she's learning about, about God. And, and, and so God was saying to her, Aunt Edna, even as a child, you, you know, you can learn more about me uh, if you want to. I, I would love for you to. I would love for you to be my child. But Aunt Edna, at that moment in her life, made a little decision. And the decision was, maybe she didn't verbalize it as such, but the decision was, it may not have been real conscious but she made the decision, you know what, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not going to do that. I, I really want to pursue other things. And then there would be times in her life she would go on a, on a vacation and she would be out on, this, on, on the, the beach and she would be looking up into the skies and seeing God's creation or maybe in the mountains, maybe in Hawaii, uh, maybe somewhere of great beauty and just profound beauty of God's creation. And, and she would see that and, and God would be speaking to her through creation and saying, you know, there was somebody, I, I created all of this and I created you and, and I, I would love for you to, to know me and to be my child and, and to be a part of my family. And so God was speaking to her in his way through creation, and there may have been times when she did something wrong, and maybe Aunt Edna is not perfect, uh, and so God would whisper to her through her conscience, you know, Aunt Edna, you, you can be forgiven of this, and you can be cleansed of this, and you can start, have a brand new beginning, you know you need a fresh start, and, and if you'll do that, if you'll confess and acknowledge and repent of your sin, uh, I will forgive you of everything, Aunt Edna, and, and I will fill you with my spirit, and, and I will, I, I will, I will help you navigate through life. But Aunt Edna made a decision in that time of her life, and that decision was, in essence, I will, I will not bend my knee. I will not bow. I will not repent of my sin. I will be the captain of my life. And as she grew older, maybe she knew people who began to struggle, and she begins to struggle with health issues of her own, and she's beginning as she gets older and older to bury her friends and to watch them die and to be confronted with her own mortality. And God whispered to her through those experiences, you, you cannot beat death, but I have planted eternity in your heart. This fear of death and the longing for something more 
what you're longing for is me, and I can give you this. I can give you eternal life. When my mom suffered a massive heart attack, she was 68 years old. You know what she said to me? For the first time, I realized I'm not going to live forever. First time. But little Aunt Edna made a decision. I will not ask. I will not say yes. I will, I will not give my life over to you. And so her life comes eventually to an end. Now think about this. God has given her the word. He's given her creation. He's given her the, her conscience, the Holy Spirit, other people. Facing her own, in her own mortality, God has gone through all of these things throughout the entire course of her life, and all of her life she made a little decision, and maybe she said something like, well, maybe someday, maybe someday, but not now. I'm not doing it. My question is, what else could God do? What else could he do? other than hogtire, put her in a straitjacket, and force her into heaven. You see, the, the doorknob that opens up the doorway that enters you in through eternity, where you may end up in this destination of the place called hell, the doorknob's on your side of the door. The Bible says Jesus is knocking on your door. He's been knocking on your door all of your life in a thousand different ways. But if I never open up the door and allow him to come in, when this life comes to an end, I have sealed my eternal destiny that was never God's desire His desire is that I would have opened the door to Jesus, allowed him to come in, become his child, and spend eternity with him. That's God's desire.